When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the children of a ravaged land, one may think of revenge. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast and Total War Pharaoh. Today, we introduce two more of the game's major leaders, the lords of Canaan and Syria, named Bai and Irsu. They are fascinating historical characters. One, a schemer and manipulator who politicked his way to ultimate power. The other, a ravager who plundered destroyed, and sacked any who got in his way. These lords are intriguing figures indeed. Let's meet them. The Chancellor Bai and the Ravager Irsu both take up command in the lands of Syria and Canaan. This region, historically, has been at the mercy of great imperial powers. And around 1200 BCE, those conflicts were only growing. As a ruler in Canaan, you must deal with the great empires, Hatti to the north and Egypt to the south. The Hittites have been a particular thorn in recent history, conquering cities like Carchemish and Ugarit. And the Egyptians have caused great trouble in the south, particularly in the Fenku lands, modern-day Lebanon. They had conquered Byblos, or Gubla, nearly destroyed Megiddo, and fought repeatedly over the stronghold at Kadesh. The local city-states like Ashkelon, Gaza, Jaffo or Joppa, Jerusalem or Jerusalem, and Byblos or Gubla, have all had their dealings, both diplomatic and military, with the rulers of Egypt. Whichever faction you command, you must engage with the pharaoh. As the game scenario opens, Egypt is ruled by Merneptah, and this king has been active in Canaan. A few years into his rule, Merneptah dispatched an army to the region to crush what he described as a rebellion. In a monumental text, Merneptah said the following, quote, All the rulers are prostrate, crying peace, or salam. Not one among the nine bows, the traditional enemies of Egypt, dare to raise his head Plundered is Libya, Hatti is at peace, and carried off is Canaan with every evil. Carried away is Ashkelon, taken is Gezer, Yenoam is reduced to non-existence, Israel is laid waste, having no descendants, Kuru, or Syria, has become a widow because of the Nile land. All lands together are now at peace, and everyone who roamed about them has been subdued by the king of southern and northern Egypt, Ba-en-Ra, Meri-Amun, the son of Ra, Mer-ni-Ptah, given life like Ra. End quote. This text is one of the most famous records from the reign of Merneptah. His description of cities and peoples in Canaan and Syria is particularly noteworthy for being the first reference in an Egyptian record 
to a people called Israel. Israel, or Isiriar, as the Egyptian goes, are possibly an early group of the biblical Israelites. Scholars have debated this particular question for generations, and there's no strong consensus on who these early Israelites were, where exactly they were living, and whether they were a nomadic people, or whether they had settled. In the hieroglyphs, there is a distinction between the foreign lands, using the hieroglyph Chasut, and the people, called Remech. The regions of Canaan, Ashkelon, Gezer, and Yenoam are all described as lands, but the Israel are described as people. For those who are interested in the Old Testament narratives, this might fit with some of the tales from Exodus, in which the early Israelites wandered in the lands of Canaan before finally finding a place to settle. That is a massive question that I'm not going to get into right here, but Merneptah's description of wars and victories in Canaan is one of his most significant records from a historical and religious perspective. Whoever these early Israelites, or Isiriar, were exactly, they were clearly part of the wider Canaanite landscape, which included the lands of Canaan itself, or Kanana, Ashkelon, or Iskarni, Gezer, or Kajar, and Yenoam, or Yenuamah. And these are all peoples and lands over whom Merneptah claimed victory. If you should take command of a Canaanite faction, you are inheriting power in the wake of these wars. Major settlements have been plundered by Pharaoh's warriors, and the urge for revenge may be strong. If you should take command of the armies of Bai or Irsu, this may be a good justification for war in the Nile Valley. Then again, perhaps you wish to look slightly further back and go north against the Hittites. The Egyptians are not the only ones to plunder Canaan and Syria. A few generations previously, great rulers of Hatti, like Supaluliuma I, had waged devastating campaigns across the lowlands of Syria and northern Mesopotamia. The Hittites had sacked great cities like Karkemish, conquered Ugarit, Amaru, and Kadesh, and they extorted huge quantities of tribute in gold, silver, and all good things from every single land. So the Hittites and the Egyptians are both worthy enemies, ones that you might consider destroying in your quest for power. For the Canaanites, geography and political fortune had conspired to prevent a strong, centralized kingdom, and at the mercy of great empires, they had suffered the ravages of war, conflict, and conquest. But as total war pharaoh begins, the opportunity may arise to change that difficult path. So, around 1200 BCE, as total war pharaoh begins, the lands of Canaan are in a vulnerable state. But perhaps that can be changed with their powerful leaders. Now, let us introduce these men, the Chancellor Bai and the warlord Irsu. Around 1200 BCE, the Egyptian government came under the influence of an interesting man. His name was Bai, or Bey, which roughly translates as soul, or maybe bull. Bai seems to have been a foreigner. He, or his parents, probably came to Egypt during the later years of Ramesses II, the great pharaoh. 
We suspect this because Bai also uses another name. Sometimes he calls himself Ramesses Kaem Necher, or Ramesses appears as a god. Names like this that glorify the reigning monarch are very common for foreigners moving to Egypt and trying to integrate with the local society. Bai, also known as Ramesses appearing as a god, may have come from Canaan or Syria. This was not necessarily a bad thing. The Egyptian government, especially during the New Kingdom period, from 1500 to 1100 BCE, was quite adept at integrating foreigners into the political hierarchy. The pharaohs themselves made marriage alliances with distant kingdoms, bringing princesses back to act as queens of Egypt. Within the state administration, we also find individuals with non-Egyptian names rising to incredibly high positions. And when the pharaohs conquered or invaded a region, they would often bring the children of local rulers back as hostages. These children would live in the royal palace and be educated alongside the princes and princesses. So every pharaoh probably knew many foreigners, both from their time as a child and their training in the government itself. Basically, by 1200 BCE, the Egyptian rulers were well acquainted with foreign customs and peoples, and they were happy to integrate them into their political system. Given the long history of such practices, Bai could have been a nobody, just another foreigner holding government power, but his influence and his power outstripped any predecessor. In the later years of King Seti II, following the death of Merneptah, the royal official Bai seems to have helped the king to regain his power in the south of Egypt. Seti had been temporarily deposed or usurped by the viceroy Amen Messi, but when Seti regained his power and his control over the south, we suddenly find images of this man, Bai. Bai appears alongside the pharaoh, standing in a position of near equality and support. What's more, he even appears at the same size as the reigning king. This is incredibly unusual. Traditionally, Egyptian art places officials in a subordinate position. They might appear before the king, making offerings or praises, or they might appear behind him, but at a much reduced scale. To stand beside or behind the pharaoh at an equal physical size, that is reserved for royal children, the queens, and the gods. So to appear in this position as a mere royal official, Bai must have been incredibly powerful. Following the death of Seti II, a new pharaoh came to power. His name was Sipetah, and he was assisted by the queen regent Tausret. Sipetah does not appear in total war pharaoh, but during this young king's reign, the royal official Bai seems to have gained even greater power and control. Once again, royal art shows Bai standing beside or behind the pharaoh, while Sipetah makes offerings to the gods and conducts business in the court. Bai accompanies the king on these important events, displaying his status, and hieroglyphic texts record Bai's words, in which he describes his service for the great pharaoh. At the same time, he also describes his own power. In one text, Bai offers a praise to the reigning king, and he says, quote, 
I set my eye upon you, the king, since you were alone. I have protected all your people, and your servants heed my voice. I am a master in action, seeking out good things to do for you. May you endow my body with health, for I am a noble one upon the earth, for the spirit of the great overseer of the seal, for the entire land, by the true of voice. End quote. Officially, the text is a praise for the reigning king, but Bai not so subtly indicates his importance. He says that he set his eye upon the king, in other words, he watched him and looked out for him. He protected the king's people, and the pharaoh's servants listened to Bai's instructions. It seems as though Bai was kind of the shadow ruler of the Egyptian government, while the pharaoh was perhaps too young to rule in his own stead, Bai acted on his behalf, and he controlled the government. Even more curiously, there is a possibility that Bai was actually responsible for this pharaoh's accession. In one text, Bai describes himself as, quote, One who established the king in the place of his father, the beloved of his lord, Bai, end quote. This statement is incredibly unusual. It seems that Bai was claiming credit for the young ruler's ascent. There is a complicated political backstory to that, which I won't get into right now. But suffice to say, Bai seems to have risen to the very tops of courtly and government power, and he may have been something of a kingmaker. These records give us a sense of a man skilled in politics, one able to manipulate or orchestrate important groups to support his way of thinking. Because Egypt was a monarchical state, Bai couches his rhetoric in the language of service, service to the reigning pharaoh and to the great gods. But if we read between the lines and look behind that veil, we get a sense of a man who was orchestrating events for his own benefit. His motivations are entirely unknown. Perhaps Bai was genuinely a devoted servant of the pharaoh and wished to rule in a good manner. Or perhaps he wanted things his own way, for his own benefit and wealth. We can only speculate on the evidence that is actually available. But long story short, Bai was prominent and influential, and he was basically a king in all but name. Historically, Bai came to a sticky end. In year five of Sipatar's reign, we have a record in which it is announced, quote, the pharaoh has killed the great enemy Bai, end quote. The reasons for Bai's execution and the larger political context are still a matter of speculation. But apparently, after playing kingmaker for five or more years, Bai ultimately fell to courtly intrigue. But perhaps you will avoid that fate. In Total War Pharaoh, Bai is especially strong in the courtly politics and administrative factors of the game. His royal decrees happen instantaneously, and he enjoys higher influence across all of his lands. He can also manipulate the courtly situation successfully, taking opportunities from other factions and using them for his own benefit. Whether he seeks the kingship itself, or is content with an administrative role like vizier, Bai is incredibly strong in the political and administrative theatres. You would do well to use these advantages. Rulers make history. I write it.
Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The high official, Bai, has the skill and the brains to manipulate his way to power. But for some, these schemes are simple deceptions, and the only true strength is in the spear and sword. If that is you, you may be more comfortable with the Syrian Ravager, a man named Irsu. Irsu is an intriguing person. We have one historical record for this individual. It comes from Egypt, and it references Irsu only in passing within a larger political and military context. The name itself, Irsu, is Egyptian, and it probably translates as one who made himself, or self-made. He is described as being Syrian or Hurrian, Haru in Egyptian. And in one surviving text, we hear about his rise to power. The text goes as follows, quote, The land abroad belonging to Egypt, that is Canaan and Syria, was abandoned, and every man was loyal only to himself. He, the average foreigner, did not have a chieftain or spokesman for many years. One was killed, and his replacement was a dignitary only of wretches. This happened in the empty years. And then Irsu, a Syrian among them, acted as chief, and he made the entire land serviceable to him alone. He joined his followers, seizing property, and the gods were treated just like men, as one did not perform offerings inside the temples. End quote. This text comes from an ancient Egyptian document called the Great Papyrus Harris. It is not strictly historical, it is largely a work of propaganda to justify the ascent of a particular royal family. But this passage about Irsu and the troubles afflicting Canaan and Syria is possibly the most discussed section of the entire papyrus. Depending on the translation you read, this passage may be referring to Egypt itself or to the foreign lands. I follow the translation by Hans Goedeke, who placed it, I think, in its correct foreign context. But some Egyptologists still view this text as describing Egypt itself, and thus they view Irsu as one who may have invaded and ravaged the Nile Valley. Either perspective might work, and it largely comes down to translation. Personally, I think Godica has approached it correctly, but I can't argue too strongly with the other interpretations. What we can say, based on the surviving references, is that Irsu was a raider, a ravager who seized power by force, and used his followers to stamp his authority on the land. Supposedly, he and his entourage seized property, they stole or raided, 
and they even plundered temples and prevented locals from worshipping. Now, in the ancient world, temples were not just religious sanctuaries, they were also storehouses of treasure and art, valuable banks, if you will, for the local state and administration. So plundering a temple was not just an act of sacrilege, it could also be a useful path to wealth and power. Working backwards from that, we can at least see Irsu as a powerful raider, kind of a brigand chieftain, marching forth with his armies and taking what he desires. It is a very slim historical foundation, but it gives just enough to build a compelling picture. Carve a path! Irsu! Should you take up the command of Irsu's faction, you enjoy many benefits both in war and in politics. Irsu's factions are well armoured, and they are particularly strong in the melee. As raiders, they are exceptional at gaining additional loot and plunder following a successful battle. If you spend time in enemy lands simply raiding their territories, you will gain greater income than an ordinary settled society might do. And as a warlord with a powerful army at your back, the great ones of distant courts would be happy to engage your favour and use you for their own ends. So, in the courtly sphere, you can gain access to favours and rewards much greater thanks to your ferocity. Of course, there is a downside. As a raider, a nomad and ravager, your actions have a destabilising effect on the world's civilization. And for every official command which you enact, you slowly erode the foundations of stability and order. This may be to your benefit, even your desire. But think twice before destroying everything in your path. With your power base in Syria, you are particularly exposed in a geographical sense. As raiders come from across the seas, you may find your shores ravaged and destroyed more thoroughly than you could ever do. Historically, the Sea Peoples were a particular menace in Syria and Canaan. They burned cities like Ugarit and Imar. In some cases, they destroyed these towns so thoroughly that they never rose again. As Irsu, you must look to the Sea Peoples' menace. Although you may excel on the battlefield, you should be wary lest your destructive talents erode the foundations of your own state. Basically, you may plunder your way to power, but others may do the same. Whatever the threats, your warriors are prepared to face them. Irasu's personal bodyguards, the Henku, are well armed with swords and axes. And as a Syrian, Irasu can also recruit battalions of the Marianu. Marianu is an old word, possibly Indo-European in origin. It may come from the term Maria, meaning a young man or a warrior. We learn about the Marianu from the great Mesopotamian kingdom called Mitanni, or the Hurrian land. And the Marianu became elite warriors, especially charioteers of the king. Irsu can deploy the Marianu of the ancient Hurrian lands in two distinct forms. Like the dismounted knights of medieval two total war, you can recruit the Marianu on foot or as cavalry. On foot, they carry heavy bronze shields and wicked axes, marching in the centre of your line and ready to strike the enemy infantry down. On chariots, the Marianu race ahead, wielding spears to stab their enemies at long range. 
The Marianu are yours, that is, Irsu's great knights, and you can use them to race across the desert, plundering the land. Historically, Irsu is a truly mysterious person. We have one record that references this man, and historians debate that to this day. But from such humble beginnings are magnificent stories born. You can take Irsu in any direction you want, historical or otherwise. Ravage the lands around you and build a fearsome empire. As total war pharaoh begins, the lords of Canaan stand in an exposed position. Geographically, they do not enjoy strong natural frontiers, and you must fight for your hold on security. But once you have established your base, the opportunities are many. You can march north to take command of the Kingdom of Hatti, or go south to seize the Nile Valley and rule as pharaoh. Whatever your choice, you will avenge the sufferings of your ancestors just as the Hittites and the Egyptians have ravaged your lands, perhaps it is time to plunder theirs. Still, while your warriors will follow you to death, make sure to guard your coastal frontiers. Canaan and Syria are particularly exposed, and as the menace of the Sea Peoples is growing, you must be ready. All this and more is your playground in Total War Pharaoh. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.